Welcome to the Handjam Ran Show, the audacious podcast by Hannah Rankin. Welcome. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Hannah. And it's good to connect again. It's been years since we uh, last saw each other uh, back in it's been the, a long time. the Reese days. <laughs> I know. Oh, gosh. We worked on the shop floor together in Bristol. Yes, we did. We did. And so, um, yeah, and it's great to, to see all that you're doing. I obviously read through the pack that you sent over as well. And I think it's incredible the journey you've been on. So um, definitely kudos to you. Thank you. I just wanted to check in with you and see how the last few months have been for you with lockdown and also your involvement in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's it's the past few months. I mean, this year, 2020 has been intense for all of us, you know, in, in some way, shape or form. Yeah. It's been life changing for many of us in some way, shape or form. And so I think the pandemic, for one, has been incredibly interesting. And there's so many people who so many of our lives are just won't be the same moving forward, you know, and so that's that's interesting in itself. And then on top of that, to have a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going on for years. But, you know, obviously with the mm. recent killings of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd back in May, obviously there was another kind of global conversation happening around the injustices that black people around the world face every day, particularly in America when it comes to police brutality. Yeah and the killing of unarmed black people. And so it's been really interesting. I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday that in a lot of ways, the pandemic has obviously been horrific, but so much life has come from it because I think about what how the Black Lives Matter movement would have been different if we weren't in the pandemic. For sure. You know, if we didn't have the we didn't have the things and you know our daily routines that you know were normally preoccupy us how 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 much easier it would have been to just turn off, you know, and to ignore it. And it's kind of like all of these different elements all kind of came together and created this perfect storm. And here we are now. Uh, now I would say probably in the um, the next phase of, the, of what's going to be the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020. And yeah, it's, 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 been, it's been really interesting. Uh, leading up to the protest, so I was part of the Bristol protest, which happened on the 7th of June. And leading up to that, the weeks leading up to that were some of the most emotional, draining, mm. disappointing, angry, mm, arduous times I, I've had in a very, very long time. Yeah in a very, very long time. I, and I, to be honest, I think as well, it was just, it's, it's that collective grief, yeah. you know, it's not just like yourself. It's like literally on like a global scale. You just, there's like an energy of just like, wow, like there's so much wrong with this world. And we're grieving the loss of obviously the people who lost their lives, but we're also grieving for our society mm. and we're grieving for ourselves and we're grieving but just the way the world is, but doesn't have to be, you know? And I, it was just this, I just, I think, and I think so many of us have picked up on that. You know, I think that, you know, when you have so many different people having conversations, you know, sometimes heated, sometimes, you know, yep, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes misinformed, sometimes, 
you know, you name it, you know, I think again, that kind of, that kind of plays into everything. And so I, 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 like I said, I told my friend the other day, I, I'm not sure what people think of protesting and, and particularly black people protesting for about racism and their rights and justice. But I can speak for myself. I can't speak for the entire community, but I can speak for myself. I consider a massive privilege and an honor to be able to represent my community and to stand up for my community uh, and to stand up for black people all around the world and the justice for black people all around the world. It is not what I wake up in the morning wanting to do. Mm. It is not, you know, I did, I was not there on college green with 10,000 people almost and say, you know what, this is exactly what I want to be doing. You know, like, no one wakes up and wants to feel this. Like no one, it's not a good feeling, you know? Now getting to support my community and, and help lead my community, of course, that's an incredible feeling. But having to deal with racism, having to deal with all of these issues and social issues, it's like there's so much more that we could be doing as black people than fighting for basic human decency. Like there's just so much more. And so it's, I consider it to be a beautiful tragedy. You know, it's beautiful in so many ways, but it's tragic. You know, I was at the, I was at the protest with my father, you know, who dealt with his own issues. And then my, his grand, you know, his father dealt with his yeah. own issues. And you go back two or three generations and then our family's in slavery. And then it's just like, a, it's just completely blank slate. Cause you know, there's no way of even knowing <laughs> what our family, what, you know, who our family yeah. was, you yeah. know? And it's just, it's just that it's again, it's like, it's just literally generational trauma mm. that you're having to deal with. And I don't, I think, I think the conversation is starting to happen now more, but I, again, I don't think a lot of people recognize the, the trauma, the racial trauma, the gaslighting, the, the mental and emotional uh, issues that kind of arise from racism and, and from having historically so many other groups of people ignore it and, and say that it and deny that it's happening. So there's a lot of emotional and mental healing that the black community and, and other community groups as well, but particularly for the black community have to do right now. And it's challenging to heal when this world continues to make new wounds. It's a very hard thing to do. You know, it would be challenging even if, you know, racism ended today, there yeah. would still be a bunch of work to do for the black community to heal. Yeah. But to, again, constantly be dealing with it and still work on your healing and then, you know, help to educate others and help to, you know, it's a lot of work, you know. And so, again, it's not, um that's not a victim mentality that I want to uh, perpetuate or anything like that. And I, I don't, I don't say it from a place of victimhood. I say it from a place of reality. You know, that's just the reality of where we're at right now. And so allyship and having partners in the work for the justice of black people and equality and equity of black people is incredibly important. So podcasts like this, Hannah, are incredibly important because it helps to speak to different audiences and to different communities and hopefully help to educate and inform people about how they can help and support uh, and partner in that work. Wow. I mean, what a comprehensive overview of the last few months and indeed our history. Um, thank you for being so vulnerable and honest about your experience and the experience of your family even. Um, I think that the conversation around generational trauma is one that is not tapped into enough I mean from the limited understanding that I have it's been proven scientifically that you actually transfer trauma through central nervous systems through on, on a cellular basis so that can be passed down literally from your parents into your physical makeup and 
this idea that like slavery hasn't happened to you personally today and also the denial of you know I wasn't a slave trader I wasn't someone that had slaves so I'm off the hook like this denial of the past I think is so damaging in itself um yeah so I thought it was interesting that you picked up on that and well thank you for the comment on on the podcast I um I think it's truthfully the least that we can do and um I'm very cognizant of having the opportunity to have uh, an abundance of white ears um listening and so it is really important that we're having these conversations also behind closed doors not just when we have um you know close contact with black and brown people but when it's just white people these these are the conversations we need to be having and um I appreciate you taking the time to share your experience and I guess the I'm I'm very conscious of the labor and the um emotional ask that it is for you to come and talk about these issues but yeah I'm extremely grateful um you also touched on healing and the the mental uh effects of such oppression and um I find it really fascinating in particular the work that you've done in before lockdown um about masculinity and I guess we can't really talk about any of these issues in isolation they all cross over into people's combined experiences so you know for you personally you're a black man and this idea of masculinity and being able to um admit to struggles or to have that space to go on a healing journey um I know you've touched on the the limitations that society's understanding of masculinity put onto men and um it's something that I also, you know, along with racial justice, I also feel very passionately about defying that that understanding because I've I've just I've watched it so many times limit men and also uh, affect the way that they treat others. And you know, I come from a place where um, I'm recovering from addiction, and so I see other people going on that journey. And I just watch it be like in particularly in that environment, it's so limiting. And so it just holds men back so much this constant um, need of stoicism. And like, yeah, it just I just feel like it really pulls people back from their full potential. And um, I I just wanted to ask you about your understanding of this sort of social construct of masculinity and how that's the work you've done on that plays into your role in activism today. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, masculinity for me has been a conversation I think I've had with myself for as long as I can remember, you know. I grew up in the States uh, in the early 90s and I've always uh, been, have been highly influenced and inspired by women, mm-hmm. you know, from my, from my mother to my grandmothers to my aunt uh to Whitney Houston, Princess Diana, Harriet Tubman, the you know, the Williams sisters, you name it. You know, I've 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 I love women, not just romantically, but on a on a personal level as well, you know. And so uh I I just really and most of my friends growing up were, were girls and I still have a considerable amount of female friends and I mean like close, intimate female friends and relationships in my life. And I wouldn't be here doing the work I'm doing 
or be the man that I am today if it was not for those uh, incredible relationships that I have. And so for me, again, I, I, I've always had that admiration and, and, and value for, for women and their experiences, you know? And so for me growing up, that's what, that's, you know, that's what I resonated with a lot. Mm. And it's just so interesting that from such a young age, society tried to beat that out of me as much as it possibly could. Mm. Like it was, I would, it was for me to be into things that people considered girly or to have inspirations and role models that were women, you know, I was labeled a faggot from a really, really early age, you know? Mm. And so people were just like, Oh, you're gay. You're a faggot. Just because I really love women and I really resonate with them. I get on with them really well and I'm friends with them and you know, I'm not, predatory or anything like that it's just like yeah just it's just it's just cool vibes you know it's just like you know and and for me again I've always really enjoyed good conversation I've always enjoyed you know just meeting people where they're at and I and you know I remember being like five or six you know my mom and I just having like tea with each other and like just talking you know we just that's just just who I am you know and so but you know when you're at that age you know the boys then like they're not, they don't understand that you know um and it's not even just the boys adults are just saying the same thing you know some adults you know and yeah for sure so it's uh it was just a very interesting experience because i got bullied a lot and people just constantly were making it seem like there was something wrong with me mm-hmm. you know because they thought i was effeminate they thought yeah and and of course again this is the 90s as well so like there was even less awareness and acceptance of of um, of gay culture, of being gay, or anything like that. And so, being 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 effeminate or appear or acting like a girl or or being perceived as uh, gay or what people thought being gay was like was a really bad thing. It was a negative thing. And to this day, it still is. I think if we're being completely honest in terms of how society views it, much of society, I think, still views it that way to some mm-hmm. degree. Um, I don't think the fight is over for the LGBTQ plus community in, at all. Um, but people said that as in a way to attack mm-hmm. me, you know, people were like, and so those weren't words of affirmation. It was saying, oh, you act like a girl. Oh, you must be gay. All this stuff. And those were, those, you know, they meant to attack me. And so... I, I experienced that all through school, you know, um, uh, it got so bad at 13. I tried to kill myself and it was just, I just, I hated my life. I literally hated my life so much. Like, and you know, you know, I, I had to take some time in my twenties particularly to really mourn and grieve that time of my life mm-hmm. because I look back and I'm like, that was such, that's such a lot to deal with at 13, yeah. you know? Um, and yeah, I, I, I grieved for my younger self. And for me, I remember wanting to have someone to speak to about all the different things I was experiencing, you know, and not having someone around, not even having the language to use to articulate what was going on. Yeah. And so for me now, it is about me being that person that, that my 13-year-old self wanted, you know, and needed. Um, and yeah, so, but the conversation of masculinity is interesting because so much of this world tries to get men to repress their emotions, repress parts of who they are, and just really repress the feminine. Yeah. You know, it takes two, it takes a man and a woman to create us as people, regardless of what 
gender you identify with. It takes, it takes both, you know, uh, a man and a woman. And so, um, or at least, or at least, you know, um, aspects of, of typical, uh, men and women in that yeah, sense. Yeah. And, and, um, and it's so interesting that literally so many men are afraid because they've been taught to be, um, to express the, the, the more feminine parts of who they are. And so when you do have men who lean into it, they're going against a, a literally a social norm. They're, they're not fitting inside the box that people have and the preconceived notions people have of what it means to be a man. And that scares people. Anytime you can't, anytime people can't make you out or like suss you out, it's a, it's, it's human nature to want to attack you because it's almost like you're a threat to what people, what people have been brought up thinking, you know? And it's interesting because the same parts of our brain that are activated when we're in danger or when our life's in danger is the same part of our brain that gets activated when our beliefs are challenged or when certain aspects of what we think of the world are challenged, wow. the same exact part of our That's brain. So and yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why people go to war over like stuff like religion mm. or like politics or it's like, and it's like, really? And it's like, yeah, because there's something about our beliefs that we hold on to so tightly, you know, and we find it threatening when anyone tries to challenge them to the point where people would literally die for it. And in many ways, men are dying for it, you know? Yeah. Suicide still remains the number one leading cause of death for men under 45 in this country, uh, here in the UK. And so in a way, men still are dying. Mm -hmm. And masculinity is such an interesting conversation, you know, because it's interesting on one hand because I have the experience of a black man. Yeah. So that comes with a whole set of challenges but obviously as a man i carry privilege you know and recognizing that as men we have done a lot of damage and continue to do so you know and so again i think for me having a lot of my friends as girls growing up i heard so much i i mm. I, I just was i had i had that window of like how my friend's boyfriend was treating her or how you know what you know how she was getting treated in school or how she was getting treated at work or I was having these different experiences and I was saying, that's, that sucks. Like, why is that happening? And recognizing that, you know, again, it's the, it's, it's sexism, racism. It's this one, you know, it's, it's, again, it's that constant putting of one race above another, one gender above another, one religion. It's that same, it's that same structure. It's the same system, mm -hmm. you know? And as men, you know, we've done a lot of damage. And again, like I said, continue to do so. And for me, I, I got to a point where I was like, look, we, we have to be better for ourselves first and foremost. But particularly as men, we carry the, we still carry the majority of the power in almost every industry and culture in the world. And so if we aren't taking care of ourselves and being and being cog like cognizant of how we're treating others, that's a big problem because that's going to have a massive impact on so many other people. Mm. And so along with having the conversation of redistributing that power, because that is something that unequivocally has to happen. Um, we also have to say, look, while we do have this power and privilege, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to use it to better the experiences of women and other community groups? We have to take responsibility for our actions, for the way we think. And we have to recognize that we do have an impact. We do. And for a lot of men, what's interesting we're having this conversation, Hannah, now, I've been working in this space for five years. And so 
I kind of now am in a different place with things than I was when I first started out. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, yeah. when I first started out, I was very much like, yeah, you know, we can do this. We're going to do this. Yeah. Five years into the game, Hannah, I'll tell you, <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, God. there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to do. Hannah. Yeah. There's a lot of work to do. And I'm, I'm someone who has done a lot of men's work. I mean, I work with all gender identities, but I've, been, I've done particularly a lot of men's work you name it, in corporate spaces, I've gone to different countries, I've done men's circles, I've, you name it, coaching, et cetera. And, it, and my business partner, Jack, we, and I, um, we, we talk to each other sometimes and we're just like, wow, like, wow, there are so many men who actually don't want to change. Yeah. And that is the reality. There are so many men who do not want to change. It's not all men. All men aren't bad. I'm not saying anything <laughs> like that. You know, I know some great men and I feel really blessed that I do have those men in my life but no no but full stop next paragraph (laughs) yeah uh there there are a lot of men who don't want to change there are a lot of men who know what they're doing and still don't want to change and there are a lot of men who have been told what they're doing not just by women and other community groups but also by other men and still refuse to change and that is just the reality I have five years in the game now with this and that is the reality the reality is if most men wanted to change and if most men actually cared enough to change, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. And that, and it, it gets to a point that you just have to call it like you see it. That's the reality. Because if most, pe- if most men cared, we wouldn't be having these conversations year after year. So again, I'm not trying to oversimplify it because there's, a, again, a lot of trauma, a lot of you know, mental and emotional healing that needs to take place. There are a lot of men who are really emotionally still children Mm. you know and there's a lot of emotional work that needs to happen but the thing is you can't do that work for anyone else you cannot do it yeah you have like everyone has to want to do the work for themselves like you you can't you can't make someone do the work it's the same thing we're talking about with race you know same thing with the white community like no one can make you do that you have to say look i want to be better i want to be more aware i want to change and then that's the journey you start the journey and then of course people then can support you with it but until you're at a point where you want to change, I mean, we're not going to get very far at all, you know? So mm-hmm. with the male community, it's saddening in some ways. I still remain hopeful. I think that the day that I give up hope is the day I need to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm very hopeful. I just think that there needs to be a lot more work, a lot more strategy about how we go about working with the male community because there is a lot of resistance, even in 2020. Yeah, every single sentence that you said about the gender dynamics there you could have inserted the language around race and it would still be true that the oppressor and the oppressed like there's such a requirement for acknowledgement of both parts both roles both experiences to then be able to move forward and I think that lack of vocabulary that lack of understanding and willingness is what is holding us back on both racial issues and gender issues and Mm. you know I'm so sorry to hear how much you suffered at the hands of these very narrow-minded views and belief systems when you're a teenager my best friend last year took his life because essentially he didn't fit the social norm as you said and he Mm. was not accepted by his father he was bullied by him and his dad convinced him that he basically wasn't welcome on this earth and we lost 
what who I think is one of the most precious souls I've ever met because of this so yeah I feel yeah as I said before I feel very strongly about it and um it's when you talked about the masculine and the feminine contributing to every one of us it's so curious to me that we've gotten to a place in in western society that that is denied now or, or simply overlooked because I mean, I'm really fascinated in learning more about indigenous cultures um and my mm, yeah my appetite was kind of wet when I lived in Australia and um in many indigenous cultures there's this real understanding of the spectrum of masculine and feminine and I when I'm having these conversations um with people today I really try and stress that like male and masculine are two different things and female and feminine are two different things that we all have Mm. a degree of masculine feminine within within us that contribute to who we are and in certain indigenous cultures there's like there's not two genders it's not a binary construct there's like I'm gonna I might butcher this but I believe there's sort of masculine 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 feminine feminine masculine and feminine feminine so you can be like a man that's more feminine and they often will take on the more sort of for want of a better phrase like pink roles within their community and you can also Mm. have more masculine females that will take on more blue roles in their community but there's this real fluid understanding and I think it's so in both the conversations about race and gender is a limiting belief system that holds us back. And it's just such a narrow mindedness that is damaging to both sides of the coin, both, you know, men who are sort of at the top of the hierarchy in terms of power in one aspect. And yet in many ways, that position up there is, as you said, a huge killer. Like, you know, you said the statistic about it being the biggest killer of men under 45. And also in the UK, men are three times more likely to take their life than women are. So, you know, it's just, it's such a, well, I feel up until this point, um, I wasn't cognizant of quite how severe the issue was until I would say about two years ago when it started, you know, if you know enough men, you're going to start to realise that the, that this is happening. And it started happening to people closer and closer in my circle and then obviously came to a head last September when I when my best friend died um but in terms of the work that you're doing you know you talked about doing the work for five years and it's been an uncovering journey for you in in the severity of the issue and the premise of this podcast is all about doing audacious things to achieve positive change and I feel like I couldn't describe what you do more succinctly than that so would you be so kind as to tell us a bit more about milk for tea and how it started and what what work you're doing today of course so milk for tea is a social enterprise that i run with my business partner jack norman we work to better the cultures and progress the cultures that we all live and work in so that uh, for us we work with corporates we work with educational institutions like universities, colleges, etc. And we also work with other organizations to help them find out what the challenges they are uh, that exist within that space and put programs together to help better the experiences for their team members. So essentially, to put it in a more corporate term, they're transformational programs. Okay. Um, just the, It's around diversity and inclusion. It's around mental health and well-being. It's around staff retention, et cetera. You name it, whatever the challenges are, we work to 
uh, progress that and so that all the team members can be having an equitable and equal and positive experience in whatever space they're in. Mm. And so that's kind of from the more like kind of corporate side of things. And then uh, in terms of the cultures that we live in, we do a lot of work, uh, community work to make people more aware of the different challenges that certain genders face, uh, different races face, etc. It's all about changing culture, positively yeah. changing culture. When we first started out, it was very much focused on helping to combat the male suicide rate in the UK, which, as I said, is the number one leading cause of death for men under 45. It was in 2015 when we first started. It still is today, five years on. And so that was the kind of the beginning stages of it. And then we recognized that, you know, it's it's not just men's mental health, it's well-being as a whole. And it's not just men's well-being, it's everyone's well-being because if men carry that power and they're not in a good space, then other people probably aren't going to be in a good space with, when interacting with them. So then we were like, cool, we, we want to work with everyone. So um, that's, that's what we do now. That's literally what we do now. It's all about helping uh, people to recognize their identity, recognize their purpose, um, and know their value, you know, because a mm. lot of these issues that we talk about, particularly with the male space, it's, it's a heart matter. It's like, it's, there are a lot of men who feel lost. There are a lot of men who feel trapped. There are a lot of men who don't don't know who they are, are trying to piece things together, who feel confused. And my heart really breaks for them, all of them. Yeah. You know, I've been in that space before. I know what that's like, you know, where, you know, you have these huge dreams and passions or, or things you want to do in life, but they don't seem to marry up with how society wants you to be, how your parents want you to be, or friends or family or whoever wants you to be. And that causes a lot of frustration. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of friction going on inside of people, and it's particularly a lot of men. You know, men wanting to be more loving and caring, but being afraid to be perceived as gay. Like yeah. that. Imagine living your life not being able to fully express yourself because of how society will view you. You know, that that's. I mean, it's not human. It really isn't human. Like it's just like it's. And then we wonder why we have so many angry men. Yeah. You know, just predatory men and all this stuff. You know, it's because it's. If when you repress something, it's gonna act. It's gonna. It's gonna show itself in some some type of manifestation. You know, and so here we are, you know, and so we've been doing this work for five years. It's been an incredible journey. It's been one that's been incredibly challenging as well. I've seen the good, bad and everything in between. And to be honest, you know, in I probably say even before the pandemic, but particularly with the pandemic, Jack and I are really taking a reimagining and reexamining what Milk for Tea is going to be doing uh, in the future, you know, because, again, now we have five years in this game and it's like, okay, cool. I think we probably have to pivot in terms of how we actually deal with these issues, you mm. know, because the way that we've been working, it just, we're not seeing the change that we really want to see, you mm -hmm. know, because a lot of it is working with companies and we've worked with, we've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of different companies, a lot of companies that most people would know. I won't say their names, but a lot of companies that people would know. And you go in there and you see all these challenges and you see all this, all these people who need support. You go in there and you do work. Maybe you do a workshop or two where they bring you back in and you do maybe another workshop and you get feedback from the team. And they're like, you know, there's so many issues in this organization. Like, thank you for coming in. Da -da 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 -da. You know, I, you know, I was suicidal last year because of this or because of my boss and, or, you know, there's, there, there are big issues with sexism here or racism here. And you go in there because part of our part of the pro building the programs, you go in and you do a bunch of, you know, uh, you go in and gain intelligence. And you do a lot of different, you know, uh, interviews, surveys and stuff like that. And when you report it back to the, the, the manager or the person who brought you in, 
you know, you kind of like, oh, well, this is what we found. And it's kind of like a lot of them just say, okay, yeah, cool. Thanks. Mm. And it's like, all right, you know, well, we could work here. This is what we could do. This is what we can do to support your team members, et cetera, et cetera. This is a plan that we can put in place. Oh, no, 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 we're good. Wow. Uh, Okay. But, you know, you have people literally like quite suicidal, you know. Yeah, we're good. You know, thanks. Thanks for letting us know. And that's that. And that's a lot of companies. It's a tick box exercise. They just want to be seen that they're doing something, you know. So, yeah, we've been brought in. Yeah, we've worked with them. But the, the issue still, uh, for a lot of the companies, the issues still stay the same because ultimately a lot, of, a lot of companies don't really want to change, you know. It's not, and so a lot of people say, oh, well, companies don't know how to change. And it's like, I guess some of the, that might be some of it. But to be honest, a lot of companies just don't, just aren't, aren't willing to do the, the mm-hmm. work because, to be honest, to do that work is going to take a lot. Yep. It's going to take a lot. You're going to have to change your whole the whole culture of your company. And for a lot of people, they're like, well, that's going to be a lot of work. It's probably going to take some money and we'll just crack on. You know, we'll bring a, we'll do a few workshops here and there, do a pizza and a beer on a Friday <laughs> and do some yoga, yoga classes on a Wednesday and we'll keep it moving. Mm. And so I got to one point where it was quite deflating for Jack and I because we love what we yeah. do. You know, we have a heart for what we do. We're not in this because, you know... We were like, yeah, we're gonna, we want to make millions and millions of pounds, you know? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we do this because we love it. And we do this because we love people and we want to see change in this world, very tangible change in this world. And so at one point it became quite deflating because you were seeing this, you were seeing the need and you want to serve. And it's almost like the, these companies aren't even letting you serve them the best that you possibly can. And so again, we're at a place now where we're re-examining, you know, because it's like, you know, we want to create change regardless of whether a company is willing to or not, you know, or ready to or not, you know, and you're not going to get everyone, of course, but a lot of these companies, it's really challenging. And again, you'll probably have someone in middle management who is all for it. They're like, yes, yes, we need this. You'll probably have groups of people there who are like, yes, bring them in, get it. And, but it's someone at top, up top. That's like, nah, or doesn't see it, you know, or, or doesn't want to invest in it, you know? And that's tough. It's really tough. Mm. You know, it's tough when you go in and you do work, you know, you do work with a company and you get people emailing you talking about how, how challenging it is at the company. It's tough, you know, and there's just, you know, all you can do is signpost them to the best, you know, best possible help that you can, that they can get. And, and, you know, you know, it gets to, you know, at one point we just like, look, just stay in touch with us and everything like that. But, you know, you can't, you can't take that all on board because it's like, you know, this company is one not paying you. And so it's like, if you, if you open yourself up like that, you'll just get loads and loads of people, you know, emailing you and, you know, we do the best we yeah. can. There's only yeah. two of us, you know? So, but it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you almost can't just do that, you know? And it's, it's just, it's all this, I don't know. It's, it's, it can be really frustrating at times because you always feel like your hands are tied sometimes. And that's a, it's not a good feeling. It's really not. Mm. And again, especially when you love people and you love what you Mm. do, it's not a good feeling, you know? Um, It's like just watching someone suffering and drown and you're just sitting in a boat. Yeah. And you're just watching them like gasp for air. And the captain of the ship's like, don't go in. And it's just like, wow. So it's been an interesting trajectory with Milk for Tea. Very interesting. You know, I've had the opportunity to do so many incredible things. And work with so many incredible people and meet so many incredible people, you know. Um, but to see the change, and I think I think what a lot of people are recognizing is that to see the change 
that we all, so many of us want to see in this world is we're going to have to be super creative. We're going to have to be super creative, super tenacious. And we're just going to, we're have to get, we're going to have to think outside the box because if we're going through the, the quote unquote traditional and proper channels, it's not always going to work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not, you know, and so we have to, you know, for all of us out there that want to see this change, we got, we have to be more creative and just say, cool, how can we turn this on its head? How can we, how can we approach this from a different point of view? How can we look at this differently? Because that's what it's going to take to see this world change, you know, again, whether yeah. that's in the creative industry, whether that's in politics and business and education in the media, all of these industries, we have to, we have to, we have to approach it differently because these channels are are, are skewed. There's, these channels are prejudiced. These channels are biased. These traditional channels that everyone says to go through, mm. they don't work for everyone the same way. It's the same reason why, you know, people have been requesting for the statue of Edward Colson to come down for years, going through the traditional channels, and nothing's happened. Yeah, you know, so you just go and take the statue down yourself. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, again, that's what happens because the channels don't work the same for everyone. You know. And there are people who want it to stay the same. Yeah. There are people who, to this day, who still want that Edward Colston statue up. Yeah. And the same way there are people in companies who want their culture to stay the same. And somewhere down the line, it becomes a profit thing as well um, in terms of what, what companies are willing to invest in their people. And so there's obviously a money aspect of it. And we live in a hyper-capitalistic society. So that always plays a role in the West. Um, do, so there's that do. too. Yeah. That There's that too. So... Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at now. But again, we are we're re, we're reimagining things, and we're really hopeful, um, and we're really excited. You know, I've got a bunch of projects that I'm working on. Uh, I say a bunch of projects. <laughs> there are a few projects I'm working on that I'm really excited about right now, um, and that's really where I'm putting my energy because that's where I feel like I can serve the best right now. You know, and that's where I feel like I can make the most impact. And so, um, some of them are more personal projects. Some of them are linked to milk for tea, but. Um, right now, particularly coming off the back of the Black Lives Matter protest, uh, I sat down with Jack and we were both like, you know what, we have to just rethink how we do this. And it's been great because Jack's been able to, Jack's been great in giving me the space to do things that I felt like I really needed to do. Yeah. Again, as part of Milk for Tea, but sometimes it's just Daniel Edmund doing, yeah. doing this thing. And, I, you know, I, I have, you know, he's, you know, he's my, he's my business partner and my brother. And he just, we have, he supports me and I support him. And it's just been great to have that um, support from him to be able to do the different things that I'm doing now. Well, I'm so glad a that you have each other. And I'm also so grateful that there are men like you in the world. I mean, God, my heart hurts just thinking about all the obstacles we have to get to that place of, I guess, safety for all different types of people I know uh, a friend of mine's son he's 13 and I've known him since mm. he was about 10 and he's got the most sweet loving soul and loves hanging out with me and his mom like definitely enjoys that mm. feminine space and now that he's hitting teenage years he's got so many emotions that he does not know how to communicate and it's coming out in him sideways. And society has told him that he shouldn't even try to verbalize them. So, you know, I was I was living with them for a little bit. And um, he came home from school one day and he'd gotten in trouble because he hit someone. Now, he was hitting this guy because the guy had said something insulting about 
a girl. So he was trying to defend the girl's honor. But I talked to him and I was like, why did you of all people choose to lead with your fist? Like that's so unlike you. And and he had this like positive seed to the action. Like the root, the root drive for him was, you know, a kind of beautiful one in many ways, but that he thought that the best way to communicate that was through physical violence and then we go fast forward another year and his confusion about how to express himself while he has internal pain which many of us do at that age has led him to Mm. act out in some really severe ways where he's run away he's been he's had suicidal ideations he's um been found in sort of much older environments where there's been substances involved and so on you know, people as other guys old as old as 20 plus and he's 13. So it's just this real, for me, um, example, like minute example of how from a young age, we're forcing boys and young men through this really narrow tunnel. And then we're spitting in them out the other side with no capacity to ask for help to, um, you know, just lead positively through this world. And to hear there's such resistance, there's such a need for it corporately, globally, um, especially in the Western world, I feel. And yet there's so many blocks from positions of power that could facilitate that that change, that space, that um, sort of safety is really distressing. But thank God there are people like you and Jack fighting for what you are and, and providing those resources whether they're taken or not um but yeah I think oh gosh it's just it's really emotional actually to talk about it but um yeah you so you touched on Edward Colston's statue and we talked a little bit before we started recording about Bristol the city that we met in um so it's I think it's a really important intersection talking about this you know the root cause of both forms of oppression in gender and race. And there are so many different results of, of these issues, social, economical, political. And I, I think there's no denying that we're in a huge state of flux now, right now. There's, mm. it, it's kind of this, I don't know, rare moment. And and there, there have been moments like this in the past. Um, I talked on a, on a different episode about how devastated I was reading one of Maya Angelou's books and she was describing the exact same protests um, in the States yeah. as we're having now. And I just thought, I felt so exasperated, like, gosh, it's two steps forward, one step back. And even feels like more steps back than there's been forward at times, but try and remain positive and proactive. But yeah, so discussing this intersection, I think leads us on nicely to talk about your involvement at the Black Lives Matter protest, which you've touched on. So you were invited to speak to the crowd before the march began and that march then took the crowd to remove the Edward Colston statue. Obviously this moment has since garnered so much press all over the world. It sparked, I think, the review of other statues and they've been taken Mm. down in in light of what Bristol achieved that day. How did it come about for you to take the mic in that moment? And and can you summarize? I will I will link in the show notes. There's a um I think there's a video of you saying a similar speech on the BBC. So I will link to that um as well so people can hear you speak firsthand. But yeah, 
well, your first hand here, but <laughs> um, without yeah, repeating yeah, the speech so. word for word, yeah. tell me about kind of what led to that that moment and what it meant for you. Yeah, well, leading up to, as I mentioned before, leading the weeks leading up to the protests were very challenging and uh, were a roller coaster of emotions. And I almost didn't go to the protest. That's the, that's wow. the funny thing is that I almost didn't go. And I was just in a space where I was like, I shouldn't have to go. Yeah, like, I should I not that. have to do this. I was just like, I'm doing this. My dad has done this. My grandparents have done this. My great grandparents have done this. My great, great. And it's just like, where are we going mm. with this? You know, similar to what you just said, you know, when you were saying you were reading the Maya Angelou book and feeling exasperated, I was, I was watching some interviews um, of different artists and stuff like that from the nineties, from the eighties. And the, and they were asked the same thing about like how they thought about the racial dynamics in the world today. And it was interesting because all of them were like, literally they were like, yeah, in some ways it's gotten better, but sometimes I just feel like we've gotten, it's gotten worse. Yeah. And this was like, and it was just like each generation feels the same way. And it's like, where, what are we doing with this? Like, and why should I as a black person and why should any black person go into a, out, you know, go protest in the middle of a pandemic where, we are dying at a higher rate than other people yep. are Yeah. to go fight for basic human decency that we've been fighting for, for generations. I was literally like, I'm not going. I was just like, why? Well, I didn't say, I didn't, I don't, I don't think I was ever that definitive in terms of I'm not going, but I was just like, why should I go? And I did, I did have a point where I was just like, I don't think I'm going to go. And but I spoke to my father about it and he was like, you know, and I, and then I was like, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to come too. And I was like, great. And, so it's great getting to be there with my father, and I got to be there with some of, of my other friends as well, um, and just the whole city. It was great, but um, I almost didn't go. And then leading up to it, I think the, the, the probably the week before, I was something in me was like, Daniel, you need to speak. You need to you need to speak, and you need to use your skills and your gifts to be able to help lead this conversation. And I was listening to different radio stations leading up to the protest, um, and just. I just was hearing all these different people and I was just listening. I remember one time my dad and I were driving, we were listening to LBC and they had brought in, I think Nick Ferrari <laughs> um, had brought someone, had brought someone in to call in. And I was just like, who is this person? I was just like, and all the different people calling in, I was just like, who are you all? Like, what are you all saying? Mm. And it just, then it was, then I was like, Daniel, you need to speak. You've got to speak and you've got to, you've got to, Again, use your skills to be able to voice what the, our community is feeling, but also unify people, bring people together, because that's the only way that we can really do this. And I think it's so interesting, slight caveat, but I think it's so interesting when we look at the political powers, particularly in the UK and the US, and we look at the, the leaders of the UK and the US, and it, you look at them and I just literally just am like, you do, you literally do not have the acumen to be able to unify your country. Yeah. You don't have it. And it's like, you are, you two are some of the most powerful people on the face of this planet. And you do not know how to bring a country together, you know? And we have such polarizing people in office politically. And mm. again, these, these issues would be challenging to heal from, even if we had, even if MLK come back from the dead and led himself, you know, it would be challenging, you know, but, it, it, but to have such polarizing people in high positions of power and leadership, it makes it even more so. And 
that's what also what fueled me as well. I was like, Daniel, you have to right now do what Boris Johnson cannot even do. You know, you have to do what so many people literally not even can't do, but don't even want to do, you know? And I decided that, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to speak. Um, and so I said, yeah. And I, you know, I got, um, I've been a professional speaker for the past five years. I got my start in 2015, actually. Um, and uh, my, my father's a speaker. My grandfather was a speaker. My great grandfather actually was a speaker. I'm a fourth generation speaker, actually. I so, love that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And so speaking is kind of just, you know, speaking and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's in me, you know? And yeah. so I found out they were doing a protest here in Bristol, literally the night before the protest. I said, Daniel, just reach out. Cause I it was playing on my mind that week. And I was like, Daniel. And I was like, no, cause I, I, what I had done is I had, I had compromised with myself and said, okay, Daniel, we're going to go, but you're not going to do anything. Cause I was like, I'm not going to use any <laughs> of my labor. To, I'm just like, I'm going to go, but I'm just going to stand and whatever. Then I was like, all right, no, Daniel, you've got to do this. And so I reached out to one of the, um, Yvonne, one of the, um, one of the protest organizers. And I just asked, I said, I just messaged on Facebook, you know, we weren't even friends. I had to add her. And then I messaged her and I was like, Hey, you know, my name's Daniel Edmond. This is who I am. This is what I do. Is there any chance I could maybe speak for two or three minutes at the protest? Um, let me know, you know. And she got back to me in like a minute and was like, hey, sure, send something over. I sent her over a copy of a, something I had written up. She came back and said, yeah, sure. Come at 12 o'clock and you're good to go. Wow. And it was literally just like that. And wow. it was one of those things when life was just saying, life was kind of just telling you like, you need to do this. Like it's, it's what you're supposed to be doing. And so we got there. I went there with my dad. And it was interesting because I was the opening speaker, but not because that's how it was organized. <laughs> it was just happened to be that way because I got there. And it was like time for the protest and the speeches to start. And they were kind of like saying, okay, cool. They were kind of like saying, all right, there's some, they wanted someone else to go ahead of me. Um, And the person didn't want to go. I think they were a bit nervous and stuff like that. And so they were trying to figure out, all right, who's going to open up? Who's going to open up? And by that point, I was just like, look, just give me the mic. I was like, just give me this mic. And because we like, it's time, like we got, like we got to do this thing. And uh, I'm very proud of myself for just being, having that confidence and that, that, um, assurance because for me it was go time yeah, it was like yeah, i yeah. really felt like there was like it was like guys we let's like come on now we let's go and uh and so i did that and it was just a beautiful moment like to be able to serve in that way to serve my community my city uh and the wider communities in that way it's an honor and a privilege and and to be able to input into the black lives matter protest in bristol in that way that which ended up being such a historical moment I mean, yeah. wow. I mean, it's just crazy, you know? It's absolutely crazy. And to have my father there and so many other people there, it just it felt incredible. And it was just such a great day for Bristol. I felt great because I was able to serve. And to be honest, you know what? It shifted a lot of energy for a lot of people because it was such a beautiful day for all those who weren't there. It was incredibly, uh, it was an incredibly beautiful day. It was peaceful. Uh, even when the statue was being taken down, it was taken down in joy. It was taken yeah. down in unity. It wasn't this like hectic, chaotic scene. It wasn't that at all. Like, I mean, there were kids around. There was like, yeah, it was It was just taken down with joy. And then they rolled it out. And, it was, and then people kept it moving, you know? And it was, it was such a great day for the city. And I'm very proud of the city. And to be honest, you know, our, our, our statues at the top of my priority list of what's going to bring about racial 
equity and equality across the world? No, they're not. But it's it was a symbolic gesture of saying, hey, things need to change. And I'm so glad that it happened. Again, I'm very proud of the city. I'm very proud of Marvin Rees for how he handled it. Marvin Rees is our mayor. He's phenomenal. I'm, I'm in awe. He is handling things so well, so well. Um, and then, yeah, that was the day. And then before we had even gotten home, it had went global. Yeah, wow. You know, like somehow, literally before we even even gotten home, it was trending in on Twitter in America. Ice Cube had tweeted what? about like retweeted and tweeted about it. It was just like, yo, Ice Cube is in LA somewhere looking at Bristol. I was like, this is crazy. Like, this is absolutely mad. And then it just it just took off. It just took off. And then like viral, man. Like it's just it's just it's crazy. Viral. And so and literally viral. Like just so mad. And and then, you know, and to be honest, it's been such a blessing for me because as someone who gave a speech there, then you know, obviously I was, you know, I got I got recognition as well to some degree, not that I had anything to do with the statue coming down, um, but to, to be able to have the opportunity now to speak on different platforms feels really good because I'm someone who's committed to helping to lead my community and to serve my community. And so uh, it felt like all the, it just felt like everything had kind of like fell into place the right way. Um, and I'm really glad that I paid attention to my intuition, you know, and um and gave myself a chance to be able to serve my community in that way. And so, um, yeah, it, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And again, like I said, it helped shift a lot of energy. You know, obviously we were, everyone's just been cooped up in the house because of the pandemic yeah. and having to deal with all these emotions by themselves. So I think just the physical aspect of getting around other people, yes, even in a pandemic, um, it just helped. And again, like the statue coming down was like a, a win in some way. It's like, yeah. we haven't won the war, but like there's, you know, you in every war, there's different battles. And yeah. it's just for like this battle. Yeah, we won. Like we, we did this. And again, it was just such a great time, you know? And then Bristol's just one of those cities. I mean, you know, Hannah, like <laughs> Bristol's just one of those cities. Anytime you get a bunch of Bristolians out, it's just great. It's just good times, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a really good time. And now we've just had another statue debacle um, this week, actually. Um, we have, yeah. And so, yes. So, again, now that we're in that kind of the aftermath of this Edward Colson statue being taken down, again, so many eyes are on Bristol. And the interesting thing is there's so many people who want a piece of that. You know, there's so many people from London, from out, even outside the country who want a piece of it, you know. And yeah. it's interesting because, yeah, there's something that's, not quite right with all of it but obviously you know I'm, I'm not one of those people who's like you need to be bristol born and bred to have anything to do with bristol not at all not at all i mean i think the great thing about bristol like many other cities is that there are so many people from so many other places that call bristol their home yeah. and that's the beautiful thing about it and so i'm not i'm not one of those people who who's like that but i think for mark quinn who for those who don't know is the london-based artist who made the statue of Jen Reed that he organized, the, uh, he created and then had organized to be put up in the place of Edward Colston. This happened on Wednesday, I believe, of this week. That to me was such a audacious and arrogant move from his point. Um, and one that I was very, what's the word, disappointed to see happen in the way that it did. Mm. Um, even though it was great to have a statue of a black woman in the center of Bristol, that is incredible. That is incredible. Yep. 
but the way it was done and the intentions behind it, I don't think were pure. And I don't think were in the best interest of the black community or the city of Bristol. And to me, it seemed very self-serving. And for me, if Mark Quinn was someone who was actively doing the work, he would recognize that being a privileged London-based, and yes, white artist, to create that using the image of a black woman who consented, he worked with her on it in terms of she, she gave herself in terms of to, to be sculpted without including any black artists, without in, consulting the black community at yeah. all, without any, without black people having any hand in it whatsoever. To me, that was just, it was arrogant. It was very arrogant. Yeah. And you, Mark Quinn, you don't get to decide what happens in our city. You don't. And ultimately, I mean, Marva Rees, I mean, that statue was up for just over 24 hours. So the statue's gone now. So here in the city, Mark Quinn, we're back to nothing. So ultimately, who benefited the most from that statue, from that stunt? Who benefited the most? And in my opinion, Mark Quinn benefited the most. Because we don't have a statue. That statue's gone. Mm. And everyone's talking about Mark Quinn. And he worked closely with Channel 4 to broadcast it and get it awareness. Well, Mark, that seems very self-serving because there was no black people involved in creating it. And black ownership is so important. It's so important. You know, and the reason, the issue with that, you know, um, and I I shared this as well previously, the, the issue with that is because it's the same thing that happens a lot of the times. Again, whether it's whether it's record labels going into socially and economically deprived areas and getting some black person that can sing, rap, or dance, and then signing them to a label, throwing you know a hundred thousand pounds at them, five hundred thousand pounds, even a million, it's more money than their family has probably ever seen in their lifetimes for generations, you know. Mm-hmm. But guess what? They don't own their masters, they don't own their music, they don't own anything. So when the money's gone, it's gone. And guess who owns you and your music? Some usually some white man at a record label. That's who owns your music. That's who owns your talent. That's who owns your stuff. If you want, if they want to put your song in Bath and Body Works, that's what they're gonna do. And they're gonna get paid for it. If they want to put it in some movie that you hate, that's what they're gonna do because they own it. You own nothing. Nothing. And this is what often happens in music, in sports, in the in the arts, in creativity, in all the creative industry. This is what oftentimes happens. It's black talent, black culture, black bodies, black imagery. But we don't own anything. We don't own it. And this was the same thing, whether it's a record label or a sports team or a London-based visual artist named Mark Quinn. It's all the same mentality. Using black bodies for your own personal gain. And that's what it was. And Mark, there's a bunch of BLM stuff you could have you could have engaged with in London. Mm-hmm. Why did you have to come to Bristol? Why? Because people are paying attention to Bristol, and that's where you wanted to be. Yeah. Where you wanted to be. This had nothing to do with the black community, because if it did, you would say, you know what? Let me use my resources. Let me use my power. Let me use my uh, contacts, money, to 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 get a black artist or a few black artists to create a statue. And I'm going to help them put it up. I'm going to pay for it. And you know what? Then at least that's their name 
that the New York Times is talking about this week. At least it's their name that the Washington Post is talking about this week and Vice Magazine is talking about this week. But it's not their name. It's not any black artist's name. It's your name. It's your name. And you own it. If that, if that statue got any award, Mark Quinn gets that award. Yeah. Any adulation, any praise for that statue, Mark Quinn gets that. Not the black community, not the city of Bristol. And for me, that was just arrogance on a just completely different level. And I'm not saying Mark Quinn is a bad guy. I don't think that at all. I don't think he woke up that day and said, hey, you know what I'm going to do to, you know, upset some people in <laughs> Bristol? Because not, not everyone was upset. A lot of people love the statue and still do. But the thing is, it's like you got to look, you got to look deeper than surface level. Because oftentimes black people, and I'm just saying this as a black person, we get really like, yeah, we get, we get, we get really excited by crumbs. It's like you, by scraps. And it's mm. like, no, but it's like, you know, no one, we don't own that. So don't get, don't, it's the same way with like these, not trying to, not to be stereotypical or anything like that, but this is something that happens. But these, these rappers, it's like you get, again, you get a hundred thousand dollar record deal, signing deal. Cool. But you don't own anything. You don't own your music. You're all fascinated in this really, all this money now. But guess what? On the back end, you don't own anything. You own nothing. So you can be you can be all up in the money if you want to. But if you look deeper, you aren't actually winning. You aren't. And that's why with the statue, you have to look deeper. And then when you look deeper, it's like, wow, we're not actually winning in this. We haven't actually gained anything from this. And like I said, that statue is gone. It's just an empty plinth like it was at the beginning of this week. Yeah. So... I know it went on a bit of a tangent, but like to me, that shows just how much this perpetuates. That even someone who thinks they're doing something right, and I don't know Mark Quinn, I don't know his intentions, but again, you're seeing that even even with the best of intentions, it's you're repeating the same cycle that happens all the time. Yeah, you know. And so, I mean, I would I would very much welcome a conversation with Mark Quinn. I and I have to I have to I have to end this part at least by saying that I think Mark Quinn is an incredibly talented sculptor. He is. He's actually, in my opinion, one of the people leading the way with contemporary visual British art. I think he's great. This is nothing against him personally or his talent. I think he's great. But he has to even recognize that, the, first of all, the art industry is just as biased, prejudiced, and racist as every other industry. And there are very few black sculptors for, for this social, economical, and a plethora of other reasons. So in my, in my opinion... Mark Quinn, he did what he did is he he handed down. He didn't bring people up. Like he didn't yeah. bring the black community up where he was. He passed something down. And again, it's scraps, it's crumbs. Take this, but guess what? In the back end, this is all me. And so it's challenging. And again, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of black people that felt really good about that statue. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If you feel good about it, feel good about it. Feel great about it. There's nothing wrong with that. And Jen Reed, you had a statue in Bristol, granted for 24 hours, but you had a we had a black woman as a statue in Bristol. That's incredible. Yeah. And for that, I'm very thankful. But guess what? No matter what goes in there now, in that place, is going to be overshadowed by Mark Quinn's statue. No matter what goes in there. And the thing is, as Bristol, like, first of all, you have to look at it from this point of view as well. Our leader, because obviously we're a city, we have a mayor who just happens to be a mixed race black man. He had already had a strategy of how we were going to move forward as a city to bring everyone together around what was going to go in Edward Colson's place. That was already happening. He commissioned a team to speak to different community groups, to get different people involved, to get the black community involved, the white working class community involved, all these different communities involved so that we could be unified in what goes up there. 
There was already a plan in place. So you strip that power away from what happens to be a mixed race black man who leads this city because you wanted to make a stunt. And it's like, again, you're not looking at it. Again, you got to look at it from a deeper level. Like no, now I'm telling you, Hannah, no matter what goes up there, people are going to remember that we had a black woman in the center of Bristol and anything short of that is going to be a disappointment. Yeah. So now that now that's the challenge that we have now in Bristol, because guess what? What go, ends up going up there is probably not going to be a black woman. So people are just gonna be disappointed. Mm. So that's where we're at, and we still have no statue. It's really disappointing because what I've learned recently over the last couple of months is that not only are there environments that we need to be bringing m- many more black and brown people into. But there are also environments where we need to realise as white people, we need to just not be in them. So it's not just about increasing representation in certain circles, but like stepping back and and it's sort of leaving the stage for black and brown people to shine just as they should be. And it's interesting, you talk, you know, talking about the art industry, I did half of a master's of fine art when I was in Australia and mm-hmm. um one semester I purposely focused all of my projects on the decolonization of the art world. And so in Oz, there's a lot of um, fascination with indigenous art, and yet there's very, very few indigenous art curators or managers of the big galleries. And so they're putting on these indigenous art shows. um, But as you said, it's, it's cherry picking the talent and giving none of the the gravitas or the reward or the status or the power actually to those communities and I feel like what Mark Quinn did was a he robbed that opportunity from the black community and b he didn't bring as you said didn't bring people up with him he yeah handed down you you articulated that so eloquently but he also I feel like he's patronized the movement by using it Mm. as a trend he used it as a a media moment for himself and that it belittles actually everything that goes into it um so I think you actually you talked about him very graciously but it's uh disappointing definitely as you said um so okay my next question is I read that you are working on a documentary to raise awareness on the social inequalities in your beautiful city. Um, Oh, I've just got to touch on uh, your gorgeous mayor. I listened to um, Annie Mack did (laughs) an episode with him and I was just... Really? Yeah, so she started this podcast at the beginning of lockdown called Changes and she interviewed him after, um, you know, Bristol was in global news um and it was so what was so interesting and also saddening as much of this conversation is is as a mixed race uh mayor he said I have to be so so careful not to talk about race too much because then I just become Mm. this race obsessed mixed race person and people will cut me off stop listening to me and and I can't be seen to just be talking about race um and given everything that was happening he was like in this real I don't know state of like he probably felt between a rock and a hard place like 
obviously I want to, <laughs> I want to fight for what I know, I know to be right and, and ride this wave and make, make as much change as possible in this, in this moment of flux. But equally, I've got to be careful not to alienate certain part of my audience. Um, so yeah, yeah I, it was a really interesting episode. I highly recommend um, but yes, tell me and the listeners about this documentary. So excited to hear more about it and can't wait to support you by watching it when, when the time comes. Yes, thank you very much. Well, just to speak on what you've just said, it, that's, a, that's a reality for, I would say, most mixed race or black or brown people in political office. You know, it's the same thing that happened to Obama. Yeah. You know, people, people criticize Obama now because they were like, they say, you didn't do as much as you could for the black community. You didn't do as much as you could for black this and black that. And it was like, he couldn't, he literally yeah. could not. Like he, w- I mean, you, that what sucks about it is that when you become, he was, I mean, he was, I mean, Obama's is the first, is the first mixed race black president of the United States. And as a black man, he couldn't even help his community as much as he wanted to, because he knew how it would look. And he knew that it would turn people yeah. off. Like that sucks. It's awful. It's that really sucks. Yeah. And it's like that, and so I, I understand what Marvin Rees is, is saying. And and again, that's why what, things like what Mark Quinn did, it just, it hurts so much because you're making a, a already complicated and uh, a complicated situation even more complicated. And you did it, it did it in the most stereotypical way. It was just, it, it just was like, that's what you're going to choose to do. And it's like, I don't know. I think, you know, I won't, I won't go to down that road again, but like, yeah, it was just, again, Marvin Rees is in a really challenging position and Mark Quinn didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, so I'll just leave that. I'll leave that there. The documentary. Yes. Um, um, so the documentary actually is about gender and race. Oh, so it actually is everything we talked about today. Yeah. Perfect. Everything we talked about today. So it's, it's actually called gender and race presented by Daniel Edmund. At least that's the working title right now. So, um, so yes, that's what it's called. It is, uh, we are in the very early stages. I mean, we're in pre-production yep. right now. So we, um, I've actually been working on this project for over a year. I oh, wow. You know, I started filming last year. Yeah. And so what happened is that my one of my really good friends, Rob French, who's uh, the director for the uh, docu-series, is... Um, he came to me and he said, look, my, my, my job, um, the company I work for, he works for a company called Jones Millbank. And so shout out to Adam and Russ from Jones Millbank. They've been great in terms of supporting this project. They said, they gave him basically an opportunity to work on a creative project. And so he said, I want to do something with you, Daniel. We started talking and excuse me, long story short, we, and I had this concept of an idea that I wanted to do for ages about a docu a docu series where I look at like gender and masculinity and different you know the intersectionality of it all, and so um him and I, I brought it to him we worked on it uh, we worked on the treatment a bit and then we sent it to uh, the directors Adam and Russ they signed off on it and they were like yeah go create and so we we shot and what ended up happening was then they got really busy because obviously this wasn't like a paid gig it was just something that they were doing creatively. Yeah. And so it ended up getting stuck in production because they got really busy and they didn't have obviously the time or capacity to turn down paid work for this creative project, even though it was really great. Um, or at least they thought it was great, obviously. And then, um, and so it got, it got held up for a bit. I understood it was challenging, but I understood. And then fast forward to the pandemic, they started slowing down again. So it was like, oh, cool. Like we've got time to work on this some more. And I was like, yes, great. And then BLM happened and it was like, okay, cool. 
we we were already talking about gender and masculinity and within that we were talking about race as well but we knew that race now needed to be more of a forefront topic Mm -hmm. not just something that we kind of like threaded in so then we were like well we're already we already had a project about gender we now need to include race and because we shot last year a lot of the stuff we shot it's not out of date but the conversations have moved on you know what i mean and so we now are going to be starting from scratch in terms of what we shoot um, but the great thing about it is everything we have shot is going to be helping us um, in the back end get funding, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So um, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey, one that's been very challenging. I've had to uh, exude a lot of patience. Yeah. Anyone listening out there who works in TV, media, film or production, I empathize with you so much now yeah. because I am now in it and I'm it has been one of the biggest educations that I've had in a very long time, but I, I'm really enjoying it and I'm learning a lot. Uh, and so it's great that we have such a good team. Obviously, we've got um, Adam and Russ, who are the directors of Jones Millbank. They are the production company that are producing it. Um, Rob French is the senior creative at Jones Millbank. He's our director. I've got my manager, Mel Rodriguez, who is also the head curator at TEDx Bristol. Um, she is the development producer on it and I am the presenter and also one of the other producers on it as well. And this docuseries, uh, we are, I just believe in it so much. I'm so looking forward to getting on set and making it and getting everyone to see it. Um, it's, we're going to be exploring gender and race. Um, we're going to be exploring different uh, ways that we learn about gender and race and where our perspectives kind of grow from gender and race. Uh, so we'll be looking at family, we'll be looking at politics, media, a variety of different spaces um, and, and looking at how our perspective gets formed from these spaces and these industries. Um, but then also what we can do to tangibly change that, you know, like what, I think this big question now, of you know, um, you know, we've now within the past five years, we've had the Me Too movement, we've had the Black Lives Matter movement. And now I think people are kind of like, well, what next? What do we do next? And I think that's what this docu series is going to be exploring uh, about, like how we got here, but also what do we do next? Like, what what's our point of action? Yeah, I mean, it's so important that we don't just talk a good game, but we put our money where our mouth is and follow through with that action. Um, well, wow, I'm really excited for you, and I definitely can't wait to watch it. Um, Thank you. Um, this is. Uh, I am very excited about this and the whole team is. The whole team has just been great and I cannot wait for everyone to see what we come up with. And so watch this space. I don't have any date that I can tell anyone because we are still in pre-production, but just stay posted um, and watch this space and hopefully we'll be coming to you all sooner than later with something that you all can enjoy. I hope so too. I was just going to say before we wrap up that... um, listening to you as well talk about the run-up to going to the protest and and then speaking there I don't believe in coincidences I think I we me and my friend always say God is in the guts and our intuition Mm. is God directing us so the fact that you intuitively the night before reached out and then you got you got that moment for I'm sure it was very cathartic for you and your father and really um inspiring for the rest of the crowd that got to hear it was inspiring watching it on Facebook I can say that so if it, if I was there live I'm sure it would have been all the more moving um so mm. keep following your gut keep doing all this amazing work it's mm. been a joy to talk to you about it 
And um, where, okay, so before we wrap, 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 wrap up, um, I do a, a few quick fire questions, which just get lets us get to know you a bit more personally, not that you've not been incredibly personal and vulnerable today. Um, <laughs> but also, where can we find you online? What are your social handles so that we can come and support you, stay tuned, and then we'll be the first people to know about your documentary as well? Yes. So the best, I just actually got my new website up. So the best way to find me and learn more about what I'm doing, head to danieledmond.com. That's Daniel Edmund is spelled E-D-M-U-N-D.com. Uh, That's my website. You can catch me on Instagram at Daniel Edmund as well. On Twitter, uh, it's at Daniel underscore Edmund. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active on both I'm more active on Instagram than I am Twitter, but I'm. You can catch me okay. on Twitter. I'm there. I'm about. Well, I will link uh, all of those to in the show notes, and yeah. I encourage everyone to go and support you. Okay, quick fire round of questions. They never seem to be that quick, but we'll try. Um, what is the it. first thing you do when you get up? Oh, that's a good question. I like that. Um, the first thing I do is one. I thank God. Uh, I'm, I just like my first thing. I wake up. I open my eyes. I'm just saying thank you, God for another day. And then I, 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 I read out my choices. So I'm, I'm a big believer because the, that's what, choices are a power. Yeah. And so I have a list of choices that I, that I, that I recite every day. And so one of them is I, I choose the end result of being happy and healthy body, mind, and soul. I choose the end result of living, uh, of, of living in my truest nature and purpose. I choose the end result of letting my heart be the main uh, creative force in my life. Um, I choose the end result of being free. And so I just have, I have a list of choices that I just, I, I, and that's what I do in the morning, every morning. That is beautiful. I'm way better than the answer of checking Instagram. Um, I love <laughs> that. Gosh, you've really inspired me. I try really hard. You should do it. I've, I've only start. I've only started the past three weeks doing that. And, okay. and, um, um, I'll talk to you offline. Cause there's, I think there's, there's a book I think you would, you, you would love reading. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, my next question, I feel like I'm going to know the answer to this, but what action feels most like prayer to you? Mm, what action feels most like prayer? These are really good questions, Anna. I like these. Thank I love you. good questions. Um, what action feels most like prayer to me? Wow. Um, I would say, I think speaking for me, yeah. I think speaking, when I speak, it's just, it literally is what I, one of the things I know that I've been created to do, Yeah, you know, and it's kind of like when you have an, you know, you have an athlete who's like, yeah, I love playing football or Michael Jordan or Kobe talking about basketball or an artist painting. It's like, for me speaking, it's just like, that's what I, one of the things I know I've been, I've been called to do. And so when I speak, whether it's, you know, live or whether it's, you know, on film and like, with this docu-series or whatever it is when I'm speaking and I'm that's just when I feel and so and, and just real alignment with who I am and yeah. who I've been created to be and so that's what, what that's what most feels like prayer because it feels like I'm I'm when I'm speaking I'm, I'm stepping in my power I'm, I'm like actualizing and using my power I think we can all vouch that we feel that from just listening to you on this podcast <laughs> and um yeah my first ever my first episode of the podcast was just me and I talked about our finding our calling and it is so powerful and a real spiritual experience when mm. you can uncover what that is and then step into that light and it can be really scary but it's in incredibly rewarding yeah okay I think I think I, th I think you're starting to find you I mean 
I don't, I don't know what you feel like your purpose is, but you know, like, I think this podcast for you is a great step, at least in the right direction. And like, like I said, I was reading the doc you sent over and I was just like, goodness, like very inspiring. And I was just like, I was very proud as well. Like, just, Thank I was you. like, yeah, you, I was like, get it. Thank you. It's, um, it's, it's interesting that you observe that because I feel really aware of my the direction that I need to go and of my calling it's just like how do I get there so mm. I just got I I my solution to that question is that it's I'm in it for the long game and I just keep making small steps keep putting the action in and you know the rest will be revealed so thank yeah. you for saying it's, that that means a one, lot no of course it's one step it's one foot in front of the other it's like you don't need to know what the 25th step is it's just yeah. literally what's next you know yeah and um you're, you're gonna create i know you're, you're already doing it but i know even more so you're gonna you're gonna do a lot of good for all of us and you really are thank and you. i you know i just really want to thank you and honor you and celebrate you because mm. yeah it's to have this type of allyship and partnership in the work it's 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 great to see and again it's not you know on one level, of course, it's work that, you know, everyone should be doing anyway, you know, but it's like the way the way that you are doing it with such tenacity and uh, with such grace and poise. I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm very, I'm very impressed, Anna. You're gonna make me cry. <laughs> no, I, 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 really, I really mean that. I really do mean that. And uh, it, again, it's, I love seeing, I love seeing like beautiful journeys and I can tell that you've just, you're, you're on one that I, I think is gonna is even blow your mind of what's of what's coming for you I am constantly blown away I know I I always say to people like since for me it was getting sober and since that moment I my life has been more spectacular and more colorful and more exciting than my imagination could have even conjured up so Mm. yeah I feel that and I'm I just yeah I'm just so excited for the future because yeah just that more will be revealed like I I can't I'm humble enough to know that I I can't fathom or predict what's in store next. And I'm, I'm down for mm. the ride. <laughs> I understand. It's going to be so good. So, so good. It is. And ditto, I could say all of the same things back to you when I was preparing for our conversation. First of all, I was completely flattered that you said yes. And then when I was preparing, I just thought, God, I was already inspired by you. And then the more I did a little digging, I was just watching your TED talk as well. That really touched me and I will link to that as well in the show notes okay I'm conscious of um your time you've been so generous but let's quickly finish these last few questions yeah go for it what is the most audacious thing you've ever done Ooh, most audacious thing I've ever done be myself Mm. that is the most audacious thing I I, I've, I've ever done and I think it's probably one of the most audacious things I ever will do Wow. It's just it's just to be authentic and to live my truth and to tell my truth and to be who I am, you know, flaws and all, experiences and all, and not running from parts of myself, not hiding from what I've been through and my experiences out of fear of what people might think. I'm, I am who I am, you know, and that's the most audacious thing I, I think I've done and will probably continue to do. Your answers are sensational. <laughs> wow. Okay. What commitment are you going to make to yourself for this coming week? Another good one. This coming week. Well, it is. Oh, this coming. So you mean like next week? Mm-hmm. So like next week, what I'm, what, what commitment am I making to myself? Hmm. I 
shine bright. Shine bright. Don't hold back. Shine bright next week, Daniel. Shine bright. Yes. And don't don't worry. Just shine bright. Yeah. Shine bright and go for it. And yeah. I, I just want to say this to to you, Hannah, but also to everyone listening. I think it's really important that we really gain a self a, a level of confidence where we can we can uh, we can humbly but also courageously and confidently step into what we're supposed to be doing and step into who we are and step into our power. And I really like one of my prayers for all of us, particularly in the UK, is that false humility just breaks off from us and that like we don't live in that false humility and like this thing of this self-deprecative kind of mentality that so much about so many of us uh, kind of pick up on sometimes. Um, and I just think once we once we start letting go of that, it's like don't be afraid to be great. I think almost sometimes that scares us as people more than failing. It's like, what if I actually succeed? What if mm. people get to know who I am? Like, what if I'm actually in the spotlight? What if I get recognition? Like, that can be a scary thing. Yeah. Because for so many of us, as humans, we have this dysfunctional belief that we're unworthy. And that plays out so much in our lives, that we're not worthy. And we may not think it because it happens on a very unconscious level. So sometimes we sabotage ourselves when we when we start getting good things. But I just want to encourage everyone, you are made to shine incredibly bright. Like, yeah. don't worry about what anyone has to say. Shine bright, do your thing, and be confident. Like, just be confident. Be who you are and find confidence in who you are. And that's why, like, what Hannah, what you were saying about, like, you know, you, you feel sure about what you're doing. I love hearing that. I love hearing that from people. And I'm like, yes, be sure. Because that's what it's about. Like, there's no, there's no, we're past, it's 2020. We're done hiding away from our passions. We're done hiding away from our gifts and talents. When we're good at something, we recognize we're good at something and we use it to serve others. Let's just go for it. So that's my, that's my, that's my, those are my, some of my parting words for everyone. I love that. I feel like actually a lot of people feel very, what's the word? Um, sort of confronted by confidence I know for myself when I Mm. uh, using that metaphor of light when I stepped into my own light and I found safety in being who I am as an individual as a woman a lot of people found that very yeah confronting and kind of unsettling and especially women especially women they were like you know what, what do you what do you mean you're happy in your skin. What do you mean you're comfortable in your body? What do you mean you're saying that you're going to be this successful podcaster, for example? I'm like, why not? I said, who's going to back me if I don't back myself? 100%. 100%. And particularly as a woman, you've, you've got to be even more so, mm. you know? Like, you've got to be even more confident. And like this, because it's how this world is set up. Yeah. You've got to know what you want. You've got to go for it. Take it, take it with both hands. And, and do this thing yeah you know so many of the so many of these industries and companies profit off off of our insecurities uh-huh. and again particularly even, even more so for women yeah. and so again to be a woman who knows what you want who's passionate and confident in your ability and what you want in life that is confront that's confrontational because what that does it reflects back to people what they what they aren't and what they think they aren't so if you are confident then what you're reflecting to people is perhaps what they're not, is that they're not confident, Yeah. you know? And that's, it, and it's always about, don't, and it's always about us. So whenever we feel something, so if we see someone and we feel something, it's usually about us. So these people 100%. who feel confronted by you doing your thing, it's about them. It has nothing to do with you. 
you're just reflecting to them parts of themselves and it makes them feel uncomfortable. And that's just how we are as human beings. Mm. So keep doing your thing, Hannah. You've got to do your thing. You've got to. And I know you are and I know you will. Um, but again, like I said, particularly for women, you've got to, you've got to just do it because there's so much. There's so many people. There's so many men. There's so many, you know, who they're not trying to see no woman out here doing their thing, you know, like yeah. so many. And it's just like you just have to do it and um, and don't let anyone hold you back, you know. And so. I, I just love it. I, I, particularly when women are just out here doing it, I just get so much joy. So great, great job, Hannah. And that, I don't mean that in a patronizing way. No, I mean no, no, no. It doesn't like, sound patronizing. It sounds yeah, supportive. Because it's just like, it's just like, come on. Because I honestly think, and I mean this, I mean this with all sincerity, one of the problems that we have in this world is that there's an imbalance of this masculine and feminine. There just yeah. really is. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that I know will help shape this world again from five years working in this game is to have more women and more of the right women in positions of leadership right women in the positions of, of management places of influence we need that we really need that and we need to really honor the feminine honor women and value women because globally right now we don't mm. we really don't so that's part of the reason why so much of our world is so chaotic and out of sync because we're not honoring women who really are of any community group the cornerstone and bedrock and the, the center point of any community i know that's how it is for the black community the black community would be nothing nothing without black women yeah. nothing there is no black community without black women 100%. and so when we're not honoring women there's no way our communities are going to thrive the way that they're meant to there's no way our society is going to thrive the way it's meant to so that is part of the problem, you know? And so we've got to make sure that we're continuing to uplift women uh, and, and, and honor them. It, it really is an honor thing, you know? And it's like, again, I've seen, I've seen so many men do the opposite. And I continue to see so many men do the opposite. And I know that that is one of the reasons why our society hurts the way that it does, you know? Uh, there's no way that we can, again, be oppressing groups of people or stunting groups of people and think that we are going to be okay mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. There's no way. There's no way. So again, it's similar to the race conversation we were having before we started recording, but it's the same thing for gender as well. That's one of the reasons why we're in this mess. You know, it's like we're not honoring women and we're not honoring everyone, who all these experiences that, that, that people have. So it's incredibly important. And if you're a man out there listening to this, I'm telling you, one of the things that is going to help better our society is by honoring our women and that can start you can be part of that change honor the women in your life your mother your 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 your, da your daughters if you have them your you know aunts grandmothers your female colleagues you know your female friends your female partners for those who do have female partners that are that way inclined honor them respect them and i mean that from the i mean that again with all sincerity because i've seen it i've seen what happens to communities when you don't honor women i've seen it I've experienced it. I'm telling you, it's not where we want to stay. Mm. So that's something that I, I, I fully mean with everything I've got. So we, we can change this world. We really can. But it's going to take all of us doing our part and all of us taking responsibility for the role that we play in the way this world is. So like I said, I'm, I'm super hopeful and I know we'll get there. I think the reason that we're in a situation where society is hurting so much is comes down to fear. And to mm. me, the antidote to fear is love. So, yeah, loving one another more, empowering one another more is is where it's at. So the actually the penultimate question, good little segue yes. there, Han, is 
when was the last time you felt fearful and how did you handle it? Oh, um, last time I felt fearful, it probably was just like last week. I feel like there's always a kind of some type of... Yeah, fear's always feel... rearing its ugly head. Fear's always there. And I think the thing is, what my whole thing about fear is not trying to not be fearful. Mm. Like, I don't put my energy into trying not to be fearful. What I do is saying, look, okay, there's fear here, but I'm not going to... Uh, William Whitecloud, um, who is the, the author of this book I want to talk to you about. Actually, it's called Secrets of Natural Success. I don't know why I'm, ho- I'm, no, no, I'm like, <laughs> waiting to say it like it's like some like thing. William Whitecloud, Secret of, Secrets of Natural Success. This, I, I, I was on a course of his and it's, it's been a game changer for me. Um, I'm, I'm now reading his book. So I would, um, I would, look, into, I would look into his work, anyone who is listening. But um, he, he says that we operate out of two spaces as humans. Um, obviously, this is his theory. Um, we're either in our victim or we're in our creator. That's it. So when we're living in fear, when we're living in uh, what people might think about us, what might go wrong, that's our victim mentality. And so we have to get out of our victim and be in our creator. And it's not about trying to say, okay, don't be fearful anymore. It's about saying, cool, I know that exists. I know that's there. But I'm choosing to be in my power and mm-hmm. I'm going to create something else. Mm-hmm. I don't have to stay there, you know? But so many of us, uh, we try to, like, we feel bad for feeling fearful or we feel bad for thinking bad thoughts or we feel bad for thinking something that isn't really, really becoming of us. But it's like, look, it happens. But you, you, that doesn't have to have your power. Your thoughts aren't, aren't real in that sense, you know? So just stay in your creator. And sometimes we do get in our victim and you can always just jump back into your creator and be like, cool, I know that's there and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create something else for myself. So when it comes to fear... I won't get on too much of a tangent. We'll close this out. But um, when we get on fear, it's the same thing. It's like, cool. Sometimes I do feel fearful. fearful. To be honest, Hannah, a lot of times I feel fearful when I'm like doing something good. Mm. You know, it's like when I'm doing good and like I'm shining. And it's like, for me, I don't know if this is for anyone else out there. But when I start shining, the, 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 like if something good happens, almost um, not immediately, but right soon after, I'll be like, you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this you're not worthy of this. Like, oh, what if someone makes fun of you? What if this? It's like, so. it's like, it's almost always there. And it's like, Daniel, like, you don't like get at it. Like, it's not, it's just like, Daniel, you deserve to be happy. You deserve yeah. for good things to happen to you. And so again, when fear comes, I just do the same thing. It's like, fearful of what? Like, why am I being fearful? I understand that this is here. And perhaps there's a good reason for me to be fearful because in the past, I may have been attacked for something similar. Like, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah. But now that no longer serves me, I'm in a different, I'm 30 years old now and I don't need to be fearful of shining or people knowing who I am or people hearing me because I'm in a different space. And like, I'm just going to do this thing because I mean, who's got the time not to? <laughs> That's so amazing that you're only 30, I'm turning 30 this year too, but you're only 30 and you've done so much. Yeah, 1990. No, 90 was a good year. 90 was a good year. Like, <laughs> good I don't vintage. know what it is. It, honestly, like, 1990, they, we, like, that is some, there's some key, key people in 1990. So, yo, I'm glad. Class of 08. <laughs> Love that. Okay, to close, where yes. is your happy place? My happy place, honestly, I think it, it constantly, even since I was little, I think my happiest place is. I'll answer this two in two ways. My happiest, my happy place is when I am mm, probably when I'm working out, like when I'm working out, eating well and feeling good and dancing a lot. 
Like, I love dancing. Mm-hmm. I just dance around the house, put my headphones in. Like, that's, I'm that guy. And I, that's to me, I'm just so happy in those moments. Like, so, so happy. Um, that oftentimes happens in my room. Um, so in a, a, a tangible, physical place is my room. My room is like my happy place. Yeah. It's my safe place. And so I find a lot of comfort and safety and happiness in my room, being able to express myself the way I am. So I guess really my happy place is really just me being, um, me expressing myself unashamedly. That's really, mm. I guess, what, what I'm saying. But that oftentimes happens uh, in my room. Daniel, I'm honestly blown away. I could keep talking to you all night. I know, honestly, I really could. It's been like an hour and 37 and we could yeah. keep going. But I know people probably have stuff to do, so. I um, mean, wow, though, thank you. You've been phenomenally generous, not just with your time, but with your thoughtfulness and insight. And I, yeah, I'm your biggest fan. I can't wait to see what comes next. And just so much gratitude for all the work that you're doing. It's really special and it's really needed. So yeah, thank you. Hannah, thank you so much for the invite. I'm so proud of you. And uh, to all those listening, thank you for listening. And I hope you're having, uh, enjoying yourself and enjoy this conversation. Uh, and let's power up, let's do this thing. Let's yeah, do it. It's time, it's time. It's time, It's honestly, it's our time. Like to everyone listening, it is literally our time. So let's go. Thank you.